0: Welcome to the Rock Music Alliance interview sessions. I am your host, Cole Coleman. On today's episode, we're going on a conference call with members of Mahogany Rush and a special guest, the drummer with The Cult, Rob Zombie and Testament. We'll be right back. Attention guitar players, join the Thimble Slide Revolution and free your slide finger. With its patented shape, you can slide and fret while wearing the thimble slide. Visit thimbleslide.com. That's thimbleslide.com. We're back and switching over to conference call with members of Mahogany Rush. We got uh, from Mahogany Rush, we have members Jimmy Ayub, Paul Harwood, and Claudio Pesavento. And our special guest today is John Tempesta, drums with The Cult, White Zombie, Rob Zombie, and Testament. Better. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Oh, welcome to the Rock Music Alliance, guys. So, Paul and Jimmy, now, I- I'm told you guys were actually there at the beginning. You guys are original members, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We did all the first, uh, what, 10 records. Well, I did. Paul stayed another couple of years. But I did most of, uh, yeah, all the records. I haven't heard Frank put another, uh, you know, some new songs out. So, uh Yeah whatever you hear it's me
2: <laughs> i love it those are the good records as a matter of fact oh, yeah baby <laughs> hey. vinyl here i love
1: it cool,
0: man. Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so so paul and uh, uh paul and jimmy so how did the beginning happen like like what what was the uh how did it all come about
1: uh, we, we were just kids uh, in, a, in a basement jam, and I, I remember uh, uh, this other bass player said, "Let's go jam at this place, uh, you know, in this not far from our homes." And uh, we went to jam there, and the, and the guitar player blew his amp, so he said, "Let's." I had known his guitar player, I'm going to call him up, and he called up Frank, and Frank saw I had a brand new set of Ludwig, so he asked me if I wanted to start a band because <laughs> I had drums. I was 16 then. Frank was 15.
3: Yeah, but you guys are related. Hey, you and you and Frank are, are cousins. Are... Yeah, but I never knew him before. You didn't? No.
1: Oh wow. I didn't know him
0: before that. So so Paul, so Paul how
3: did you uh, come on board? Well, I'm the other I'm the other part of the triangle because we all live within a mile of each other. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy lived up in Utremont at the top of the triangle, and then over. If you went west, you you got to uh, where Frank lived, and if you went the other way, straight down, you went you got to where I lived. And uh, Frank and I lived in the next uh, 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 neighborhood over, called uh, Town of Mount Royal. So uh, uh, Jimmy was in the band before I was but I had grown up kind of with the Marino family. Uh, when they first moved to TMR uh, in the 60s, they, they moved a couple of streets away from uh, where I grew up. And uh, so uh, uh, when Frank got his band together and everything like that, I would go see them jam. And uh, all of a sudden came, a, came a, an opportunity where uh, Mm. He didn't show up. When Jack didn't show
1: up, and Paul was there,
3: man. I think what it was is he had trouble tuning his bass and uh, <laughs> <laughs> at a at a at an outdoor uh, uh, pop festival, and uh, so Frank got pissed off and said, "Okay, you're you're you know you're, you're, you're fired." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I ended up. And I had a motorcycle accident that day, the day I joined. Oh, wow. Ooh. So how did you play that day? Uh, I didn't have to play. I, well, actually, I, had, I, I played that night. And that first gig ended up costing me a classical guitar because we got a microphone stolen. Oh, man. And um, I had to give my classical guitar to, as collateral to the guy who had, had rented us the, the, the microphone, who worked at Steve's Music, which is the oldest music, you know, biggest music store in Montreal. Not the oldest, but the one where we all hung out. I remember that place. Is it still there? So it was pretty much, you know, like a... Uh, it's still Larry, Paul. It's strange yeah.
1: places, though. It's uh, on St. Catherine Street now.
3: Yeah, and, and uh, jamming on uh, in people's uh, basements and uh, parties yeah. and stuff. And then all of a sudden, uh, one we'd su- have an entourage following us to every basement in town.
2: <laughs> cool,
1: jamming <laughs> yeah. sure. I mean, every like twenty cars behind us or all the schools. We never played clubs because we were too young. So Frank so started, started uh, we did
3: schools and colleges. Frank started a band and had uh, at one point his brother and his and his cousin in the band. And had a band that had an organist and a, a, a girl rhythm player. and uh, But these bands are all just local, you know, they never got out of TMR. And uh, when Jimmy and I started playing, all of a sudden, this manager, the late Paul Levesque, because he just passed away a couple of months ago, uh, Paul Levesque was uh, not maybe a year or two older than us, and he had started booking shows in uh, local public uh, colleges. And uh, they're they're all over the province of Quebec, uh, and uh, so he had gotten uh, to book some uh, bands, and including some American bands, and uh, and uh, uh, to uh, his uh, circuit of uh, public schools, you know. Uh, and
1: Frank was like this little kid; he was four, uh, 15, right? I was yeah, that could play like like Hendrix. Wow. Like right. Ridiculous. ridiculous, his fingers looked like an animal on, on the neck. It was ridiculous. I said, I'm sticking with this guy because I'm gonna have to <laughs> learn fast. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> at- <laughs> letting it- this guy out of my sight.
0: <laughs> now, as as Frank, I mean, clearly he had a big uh, Hendrix influence, but was he was that really like his his natural style just happened to be like Hendrix, you know, or was he actually like trying to mimic Hendrix? Uh,
1: no, he wasn't at all. He, whatever he would hear, he could play. But Hendrix was his, uh, was the guy he was into, you know, the feedback and this and that. I didn't understand it until I
0: saw him do it. Then I realized how good Hendrix was. So, so you guys got the band rolling, and like, what what was the moment when you guys seemed to go from just a local band to professional band? Well, that's where
3: Paul Vecchio comes in. The man in Detroit. He started booking us around, and there was. There was a, a local uh, promoter uh, named Donald K. Donald, who uh, was booking uh, bands all over. Uh, every high school in town had had uh, bands, you know. Had a teen council, and they would have bands. So we went all over Montreal, and we went all over the province, playing all these uh, high schools and junior colleges. You know, uh, and uh, so that's how we ended up. Uh, Never a club.
1: Not until I was in my thirties that I start playing clubs. That's right. When
0: we came, started coming down.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. <You> know, <laughs> 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 <things> started <laughs> letting go, man. <of> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How did you get from, from that level? Uh, what got you into the signed band, you know, category? How
3: did you guys pick up your 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 record label? Detroit. Well, the first one was in Montreal with a guy who. Who had been a promotion guy for uh, Warner Brothers, uh, Bob Nickford, and he started a little label called Kotai. which oh, yeah, uh, right. Kind of, uh, what do you call it, yin Yang, whatever uh, the symbol. And he had uh, signed Rasan Roland Kirk and signed a local band, a local jazz band, and uh, it signed Mahogany Rush and helped us uh, to, to do our first single, and then eventually put together our first album. That, that must have been quite a moment,
0: you know? Like, how, how did that happen? Was, was it, did they sit down and talk with Frank, or was it the whole
3: band, you know? Well, uh, we did a demo. Before we got signed, we actually went and did a demo. So uh, we got into a van, and it was in the middle of winter. We went all the way up to Quebec City, And we recorded in this guy's basement studio. And he had a very nice studio with an olive, you know, mixing console at the time. I think it was an eight track or something, but it was really studio quality. And uh, we did Buddy. And I think maybe we did All In Your Mind also. Yeah, I think so. And uh, so uh, uh, we did a a single first and then, uh, you know, but we got signed to that first local local, uh, label, you know, and all of that got, got airplay in Windsor, Ontario, which is right across the river from Detroit right. and CKLW was a monster, uh, uh, FM, uh, am, you know, uh, radio out of Windsor. And they were one of the biggest antennas in the Midwest. So, uh, somebody in Detroit, Armin Bellady and, president of westbound records uh heard heard the band on on windsor radio it was a black label came all the way to a private party that a guy hired us out in the country uh where maybe about uh, i don't know 30 40 people from that little uh uh uh, farming village uh uh, came to the gig and uh, we played on a flatbed truck Hmm. And Armin Balladian and uh, Bernie Mendelson, like 400 pounds of Bernie Mendelssohn, uh, show up in the middle of nowhere, watch the band play a set and go, Congratulations, you're a your, your Westbound record, you know, <laughs> and signed to this big half a million, $400,000, you know, event, you know, uh, uh, deal for five five albums. You
0: know? I think I
1: got 10 bucks.
3: <laughs> Fear <laughs> <Beer> money,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, if I recall back in back in those days, I mean that is a major major deal. Half
3: half a million dollars in a five album deal. That is a, a major deal. It was and and uh, we had completely vaulted right over the whole Canadian music scene. That's we had it. gone from local to Sorry. north. Well, people uh,
1: they people used to think we were from Detroit yeah. at the beginning, yeah. 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 And that was uh, great. We'd have Viggy Pop opening, M C five, uh wow. Ted, and the Amboy Dukes, man, there's like great bands and, and, uh, opening up for us. We didn't know it, man. We're just kids, you
0: know. So cool. Hey, hey uh, John, uh, John Tapessa. I, I know you. Uh, you mentioned you're a fan, uh, really. You know, with and all. Yes. So, I mean, if you want to jump in here, if you got a question, feel free to jump in. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. <laughs> no. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. First the first time I, I did see you guys was on television at Don Kirschan's rock concert. I was a little kid, you know, it was a it was a weekend rock show. And you guys were live at concerts somewhere. I'm like, whoa, these there's three guys on stage and and I seen uh, Jim with his double bass black kid. I believe it was a Gretsch kid or something. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: Gretsch, yeah, yeah. And
2: it just blew my yeah. mind and,
1: yeah, I mean the and this is- actually a
2: mahogany kit. That's mahogany. Okay. Yeah. And so that just stuck with me. I was young. It was late night. I could, I just you know, stayed up as late as I can to watch this. And it, it just, it just sucked me in and I've been a fan ever since man, you know, that. And, and then I'll tell you another funny story. I'm good friends with Zach wild. Right. And so, uh, and he's a huge, you know, fan of you guys and Frank and all that. And uh, there was a summer we had off in 88 or 89. He just finished the Aussie tour. And I just got done with Anthrax. I was his drum tech. And we had the whole summer off, and we would just hang out. He'd come drop his girl at work. My girl would go to work and ring my bell at 8 in the morning. And, you know, let's go. we make eggs and drink tea and listen to, like, Sabbath, Mahogany Rush by the train tracks. And it was Tales of the Unexpected, man. So it was a big thing back then, yeah, until this day. So I've been on this roll on the last tour. I turned my bass player on to you guys, the Australian guy. And he's like, damn this is so good because he's very (laughs) into handbrakes and that type of style so but thank thank you guys for the music i'm a big fan as you know so this is great
1: yeah Yeah. man thanks a lot it was a lot of fun playing you know when i listen to it now i can't believe some of the stuff i was doing what the hell am i doing
2: yeah it was it was very jazzy
1: and every day you're playing like crazy you know what i mean so you're getting good like i don't I don't know where I came from. I was like uh, seventeen, eighteen, and like uh, man, yeah. I was better than I am now.
2: Oh, who was <laughs> your influences? I can hear a lot of uh, you know Mitch Mitchell in your. Play. It was
1: Mitchell and uh, Billy Cobb when they oh, came. Oh yeah,
2: oh yeah.
1: When they were in the Maj- uh, Vision came out, bang! That was Birds big. of Fire, man. Yeah, <laughs> oh, man. <That's, laughs> I was, I was stuck. Uh, I don't know, Bonham, of course, uh, you sure. know, but Mitchell, definitely.
2: I could hear that, definitely. Yeah. yeah,
0: We'll be right back with more of Mahogany Rush and John Tempesta, but check out this important message from the Rock Music Alliance and the RMA Awards. It's time that rock music has its own awards, the RMA Awards, its own scholarships, charity events, and more. And only you can make it happen by joining the Rock Music Alliance and voting in the RMA Awards. You can join as either a musician, an industry professional, or if you just love rock music, you can join as a patron of rock. Everyone can join, and everyone gets to vote. Join the Rock Music Alliance. Go to rockmusicalliance.com. That's rockmusicalliance.com. We're back with Mahogany Rush. So, with the record company uh, signing you guys, and you guys are now rocketing up to uh, you know to a young stardom level, uh, you know, rocketing over the Montreal Canadian scene. So, uh, at that point, what did you guys think, and Frank as well, of the record company's fictional publicity story? You know, where they talked about Frank spending time in a mental institution after taking LSD. How did how did you guys did that hit hit you guys? That's true. Wow. What did you think about that?
1: Like, He's still in the mental hospital. Yeah, <laughs> He's still there. That,
3: that, part, that part is true. The, the, the other part that people, get, you know, uh, really caused problems for the band was the, this whole reincarnation of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, that was the whole promotional thing that would, became a, became a problem. At the same time as being well, you know, it's like a novelty. You know, it's like, a, oh God, we're going to see this guy. Guess what? He can play like Jimi Hendrix. Maybe he'll set his stuff on fire. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, part of the publicity story was that while, uh, while Frank was in his institution, you know, after having LSD, that he had had a vision of Jimi Hendrix. You know, so he's basically channeling Hendrix into his playing. You no, know?
3: So, no. so, that's the part that's, that's not quite right.
1: No, he was just a natural. He just understood that. How that went, that feedback, and he just locked into it. It was a, a fluke, I sure, think.
0: Sure. What did you guys think of that? There, like, was was Frank offended by that, or you was the band like, hey, what's going on here? You know. Oh you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was upset
1: that they were putting us down for uh, you know sounding like Hendrix. Play.
0: I thought it was great that we could play anything close to that. You guys weren't a part of that publicity stunt.
3: Well, I mean, listen, when we started out, uh, remember playing in the United States. Uh, we, we certainly weren't doing headline tours. So we ended up being the opening act and special guest and having about like, 30, half an hour or 45 minutes or at best an hour to play. And at the time, we were doing a lot of Hendrix covers like, uh, you know, Star Spangled Banner to uh, uh, Purple Haze and uh, Voodoo Child. And then we would Matic do it. depression, First, uh, Johnny Winter, uh, 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 Johnny Be Good. You know, I mean, there was a there was a, a, a lot of Hendrix in the show, but then I, that all got replaced as Frank started developing this completely unique style, which is the Frank Marino that that we know. We from, about about from about album two onwards. You know, it's regarded that the band's biggest
0: hit to date is still strange dreams i want to find out like how did that song come together did did, well, he, did frank bring it in as a demo or did he fucking like, i don't think anybody... he would
1: just jam in the studio and stuff would come
3: up dragonfly is probably a bigger bigger better known song strange really? yeah after, after jim strange
1: dreams i don't even remember it It was after me though
3: <laughs> so. uh, uh, yeah. about april wine we were talking about april wine April Wine and Brian Greenway, and they all used to record at the same studio we did. And they had a song called "Oh, what was it?" Da 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 da. They they have a song that uh, got so very, very similar line. Yeah, and uh, and um, uh, I remember I, that. And uh, there was also a beer commercial that was recorded by Walter Rossi. How do you remember all this? Wow. the cowbell, ding, 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 ba, 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 Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I know the
0: song you're talking about, uh, yeah. yeah. You know. interesting.
3: Who tracked that it? Uh, that was
0: th- the 80s, Paul. Oh, okay, so, so so you didn't track it, Jim, right? Strange pieces is okay. with Claudio and with another drummer. Paul, were you in on the tracking of Strange Dreams? Yes. Okay, and Claudio, now are you on the picture by then? Are you in the band at that point?
1: That's when I started to play with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So did you track the keyboards?
1: I track it, yes. All the time I track. Okay. (laughs) I track.
0: So during the tracking of Strange Dreams, was there any feeling amongst anybody in the studio that there was something special about this tune?
3: Yeah. That CBS (laughs) they didn't want to play the song. I didn't I didn't. (laughs) Frankly, personally, I don't think it's that strong a song. I hear you. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, no, it's an okay song, but but uh, I mean, uh, I I love I, I love pop, and that's not that's not pop. But okay. I mean, uh, it's not a bad attempt. You know, it's it's okay. Yeah, but, uh, I never liked anything I didn't play
1: on.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I understand what you mean, Paul. You're looking for more of a strong, like a songwriting aspect. You know, more more of a strong structure. That that's, that song has kind of a peculiar structure to it.
3: It's an attempt. It's a, it's an attempt from a late '70s uh, band to fit into the mid uh, '80s.
2: Hmm. to the radio.
3: It's got the keyboard and it's got the floatiness and it's got that, boy, if you played it backwards or forwards, it's almost the same tune, you know?
0: So at this moment in time, Claudio, so this is the moment when you came on board? Yeah, I don't remember much of that day, but (laughs) he was the one that hooked me up. So, Jimmy, how did you bring Claudio into the group?
1: I I really can't remember. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: We were recording at the studio Montreal.
3: I met Claudio and I saw him play and I, I invited him back to my apartment and I had a Hammond C3, but no Leslie. And he started playing and he made the thing sound unbelievable. So I knew, Oh, this guy's the guy we're looking for because Frank was wondering, how are we going to do uh, the juggernaut album? You know, we need a keyboard player. Yeah. So, uh, So I, so I introduced Claudio to Frank and they started jamming and, uh,
1: but I met I met Jimmy at the studio at uh, Tony Barber. Remember? Okay, yeah. yeah, but but didn't we play in a group with uh, what's his name for uh, April Wine there? Yeah, yeah, Bill uh, Greenway, Brian. Yeah, no, Miles. Miles or uh, Miles, Miles? Yeah, Miles was after. after. How
0: would you go from the the Canadian Montreal band into now you're doing like tours?
3: New York management, right? Uh, no, uh, Mont- Andrew
1: Krebs. Yeah,
3: They, they um, Armin Baladian of uh, Westbound Records, uh, in those days, it, and I think it still is part of a recording contract, that the band has to make itself available for promotion of, of the, the recorded product. So that meant that we had to uh, uh, start promoting the product in the United States. So we started slowly uh, playing out of Cleveland and out of Toledo and Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, And did all of these places in the Midwest cut our teeth with uh, uh, Bob Seger, uh, Iggy Pop, uh, uh, and all kinds of bands that came out of the Midwest in those days. Well, now, Paul, who's who's handling the booking? Like, is that something the record
0: company sets up with a promoter, Uh, or is it the band doing it?
3: uh, uh, um, We were the opening act for for Aerosmith, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we started out actually. Our first tour was opening act for, for Hot Tuna for like about uh, a dozen gigs, up and down the 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 the, uh, the, the East West Coast. coast. That's east the, Coast, coast. was our first after after being in the Midwest for about uh, almost a year, but really out of that year touring maybe two or three months in the in the Midwest. Then they they decided, okay, it's time we got to get you into uh, play the really jaded you know Northeast, which is uh, New York and Boston. And that was rough, the first couple. Yeah. yeah. And and opening up for Hot Tuna, because, you know, they, they have like a cult following, you know? So if you have, are cursed to be the opening act, all you're doing <laughs> is Hot Tuna! Get off the stage! Hot Tuna! Hot Tuna! Yorba! Cassidy! But we loved it, because we're playing with our, I'm playing with my idol, Jack Cassidy. And I just loved the whole tour. It was great. And we got to play Washington D.C., Baltimore. You know, so we got to cut our teeth in the in, in the East Coast. You know. That's great, man. That's great. Did um, uh, Claudio? Did you uh,
0: have any any special memories? Memories happening? Any agency that could
3: that, that would have us?
1: You know. Yeah. I remember. I remember when I was hanging out with Jamie. He was calling me "you fing every day. <laughs> so I, I didn't know what it means. So, so that's my girlfriend. What is what is so what does that mean uh, and you know me <laughs> one night Frank is after the show Frank is screaming and throwing stuff to the wall because the sound was like you know whatever something happened Frank would have his fits and uh, uh, yeah, it didn't, go, uh, it didn't go well with the promoters
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. hey uh, Paul so uh, did uh, Mahogany Rush did you guys reach the <clears throat> Madison Square Garden uh, level like
3: when you were maybe on the same bill with another band Oh God! Only that we only did Madison Square Garden. Actually, we played Felt Forum, opening up for Johnny Winter. And Felt Forum is a little room at the yeah. bottom of uh, Madison Square Garden. And that's uh, and then we did Madison Square Garden, uh, opening up for Kansas. Oh, cool! And Kansas was one of those bands that that we started playing up and down, uh, all the way down to Atlanta. Yeah.
1: Well, it was Aerosmith. Uh, Kansas, Mahogany Rush, we would uh, switch all the time. One night it'd be us opening, next night it'd be Kansas opening. And, right,
3: and with Aerosmith, Aerosmith being the headliner or yeah, Blue, yeah. Blue Oyster Cult was another. Yeah, okay, headliner. yeah, so, right, well, yeah.
2: What year was this, like 75,
3: 76, maybe? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. eight ball. Yeah, and, and then after that, um, well, actually, that's 74 and 75, And by 75, 76, then all of a sudden we start, we we get the tour opening up 50 dates across the United States for Queen. Holy Yeah, their
1: first uh, American tour. That was great.
3: And, And Westbound Records signs a distribution deal with 20th Century Records. So we get a little bit more clout, and that's how come we start getting some clout. In Los Angeles, because that's where 20th Century Records are from. Their office is right on Sunset Boulevard. We had a billboard right on the Sunset. Yeah. So we we got a real good, you know, had Armin got really good connections for us in the West Coast, and I'm, uh, you know, so uh, uh, L.A. kind of became a second home because mm. that's where the label was. You know. John, uh, did you have any any
0: any questions you need to, to ask here at this point? Um, my friends did see you guys
2: play at Giant Stadium, I believe it was like with Journey
1: Aerosmith. I want to say Ted Nugent. Oh, we used to do, yeah, we used right? to do like about 10 gigs like that every year at the stadiums. Okay, we do like 10 stadiums,
2: well, like and Texas Day Jam,
1: the, Cal Jam, and all that stuff, Cal right? Jam, yeah, Cal Jam, Day okay. on the Green.
2: Day on the green, yeah, great one.
1: Yeah. yeah, that was great. We used to do that every year. So those were the we used to love those gigs, man. Like sixty thousand people. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. fun.
2: Yeah, I we just did that a few now. years ago with um. You just uh, the,
1: point there and you see the crowd go like that, and then you point there and the crowd goes
2: like
1: yeah. this. <laughs> 20, 000, you know? It's
2: so loud too. I, oh, I love those. Man. I love the stadium shows. We did. Uh, we did. We played with Guns N' Roses um a few years back. A bunch of them like. Two nights at Dodger Stadium, and you know it's just the rush you get from those crowds, man. It's just amazing.
1: Fantastic, yeah, really, man. You know that's why you play
2: so well, because you got it. You know what I mean? Absolutely, you got to be on your game, dude.
3: Because you're not loud, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, the Mahogany Rush was a loud band, mm-hmm. and volume for the first part of our of our uh, of our career. Volume is a is a legitimate experiment in music, you know. Is it any good, you know? And then, of course, a, a muse, musical equipment becomes more and more and more, you know, better designed, more and more powerful uh, speaker enclosures, more efficient amplifiers, more efficient. And we're all going deaf. I mean,
2: sure. You know?
3: So, but I mean, we were a loud band, so indoors, we're lucky if maybe one out of ten shows sounded good. And outdoors, we set we tended to sound better because there was no, it, the sound wasn't all coming back. You know? mm-hmm. But they're not easy shows to do because of wind, because of uh, the size of the stage, because of it. Uh, it's a it's it's a one time uh, you know stage that you're playing first time you hear those monitors and you know yeah, and this is before
2: in ear monitors. So I mean that's oh, I'm yeah. used to playing with those and I've I can't even imagine. Them you never had them?
1: I've never tried them.
2: Oh, they're great, man.
0: Once you get used to them. Yeah, in-ear monitors have really helped musicians to perform far better live. That's all the time we have for today's episode. Join me in the next episode for part two of my interview with Mahogany Rush. Then we'll talk drum gear with Jimmy Ayoub and John Tempesta. Visit thimbleslide.com for the guitar slide that frees your finger. It allows you to slide and fret while wearing it. And visit rockmusicalliance.com and join the Rock Music Alliance so you can vote in the RMA Awards. For the Rock Music Alliance, I'm Cole Coleman. Be well, stay well, and join the Rock Music Alliance.